You know, waiting, waiting is the hardest part in times of trial and pain, isn't it? Waiting is the hardest. Waiting is the worst. See, is that not knowing the outcome that's really half the torture? It's the fear of the unknown as we wait for the verdict. We wait for the decision. We wait for the outcome. We wait for the diagnosis. We wait to see if the medicine will work. We wait to see if the surgery was successful, what the MRI will reveal, what the CAT scan will show, what the board will decide, what the mechanic will say, if mine will be the job that the company cuts next. And we all know those moments in life where we hope for the best, but if we're being totally honest, we really actually just expect the worst. We all know the torture of long hours when dread like lead just crushes down in our souls and in that moment we would rather be anywhere than the situation we are in in that moment. We all know what it is like to wait. The reason why I talk about that is because that is exactly what it was like to be a disciple. Those three days between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. That's what it was like for them, those torturous three days as they hoped for the best, but if they were being totally honest, they actually just expected the worst. Because the best was illogical and the worst was inevitable. I mean, what was it like for them, those three days cooped up in that tiny upper room in downtown Jerusalem, the doors locked out of fear, hour after hour after hour, in uncomfortable silence and sorrow and disappointment? What was it like, those three days? The Gospels don't tell us much, do they? You wonder if some perhaps wondered how they could have been so stupid. How could they have been? How could I have been so duped? How could I be led astray, caught up in the emotion and the hysteria? How, how, how could I be so illogical and, and, and lose all common sense? Dead people don't rise from the dead, you idiot. I mean, you know, he raised other people from the dead. I was there, I saw that happen. And I can't explain that. But that's no guarantee that he will rise from the dead. Because unless he rises from the dead, then all the people that he raised from the dead and all the things that he claimed and said will be absolutely meaningless. That's what's at stake. And yet it is as they say, isn't it? It's always darkest just before the dawn. And this morning in John's gospel, we get to the dawn, like literally, the, the dawn of the day that Christ rose from the dead. Those dark, chilly morning hours in a graveyard in which there was a tomb and the stone was rolled away and what was inside the tomb was not the corpse of a man rotting and decomposing, a man who, who went a little too far and got himself killed. Rather, what was inside the tomb that morning was nothing 
No one and nothing was inside the tomb. Which means Christ did exactly as he said he would do. Namely, he would lay down his life as an offering for sin. And then he would take it back again three days later. And when that happened, you understand everything that he claimed. All of the outrageous, outlandish, scandalous, not to mention blasphemous things that he said. If they were not true. In that moment. Were verified and confirmed. Everything. Everything that he claimed. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. Not to mention God himself in human flesh in that moment, in those dark, chilly morning hours. Everything he claimed corroborated and confirmed. You understand, this is the deal breaker of human history. This is the game changer. This is the ultimate mic drop. This is the pivot point of history. The death, resurrection, one, two punch was literally the secret weapon of the plan of salvation itself. No wonder Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. No wonder Peter says he defines Christianity as a living hope through the resurrection. No wonder Christ said in Revelation 1, do not fear, for I was dead, and behold, I became alive. And when that happened, two things were proven true. Number one, he is God. And number two, he deserves your allegiance. So let's go back to the moment, shall we? 2,000 years, 7,000 miles away to a chilly graveyard at the break of dawn to the first person eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see three questions. Three loaded and provocative questions that you must ask and answer in light of the resurrection of Christ. That's where we're going. Three questions, loaded and provocative questions that you must ask and answer in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here we go. Let's watch the scene unfold. Let's begin first with the race to the tomb. The race to the tomb, verses 1 through 10. Because today... Today is Sunday, and it's been a hard weekend for the disciples, to say the least, hasn't it? Friday was gruesome and terrible as they watched their master and Lord betrayed and bludgeoned and then publicly executed. Saturday, without question, was a day of despair and confusion as the disciples tried to come to grips with the fact that their whole life was now ripped and torn apart. They thought they had found the Messiah. They thought they had found the long-awaited king, and now was time for plan B. And this morning, I'm sure, it was just as hopeless and depressing as the disciples hunkered down in that upper room out of fear, out of fear for their safety and their lives with the doors locked, fear out of what man could do to them. And yet we're probably too hard on our critiques of the disciples, are we not? 
I mean, even though when you look at all the Gospels, Christ told them like a bunch of times that he was going to rise from the dead. That's, to be honest, a lot to wrap your head around. That is humanly and scientifically impossible. That does not happen, which explains why on Sunday morning, none of them were at the tomb. None of them. No one, it seemed, really actually believed that Christ would emerge out of the belly of death victorious, even the faithful women who were there at the grave did not expect the grave to be empty when they got there. Which means they were in for the surprise of a lifetime. Look at verse 1. Now on the first of the week, Mary Magdalene came early while it was still dark to the tomb. And what did she see? She saw the stone having been taken away from the tomb. Now that's odd. That's weird. (laughs) Because you remember how chapter 19 ends, don't you? The corpse of Christ was tightly woven in grave cloths and then put in a tomb over which was rolled a stone which was then sealed, cemented shut. And Mark tells us that this stone was megas sphadra. It was massive and it was heavy. Not to mention, not to mention, don't forget Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate gave the Sanhedrin Roman soldiers at their disposal to guard the tomb in case any body snatchers wanted to get wise and steal the body of Christ out of the tomb. You remember this. The reason why I rehearsed that to you is because when Mary showed up that morning, none of that was the case. None of it. There should be soldiers. The tomb should be closed. The stone should be sealed. The carcass of her rabbi should still be in the grave, rotting and decomposing, and none of that was what she found. And you understand, the whole reason she was at the tomb that morning was not, was not to worship a resurrected Savior, but to embalm a body. Did you know that? Mary and other women with her showed up that morning. The the other Gospels tell us with with jars and bottles of ointment and perfume to, uh, to anoint a body, to preserve a corpse. So how eerie and bizarre and even dreamlike was it to find no Roman soldiers, the massive stone rolled to the side, no body inside the tomb because Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us that when the ladies got there, they peeked inside the tomb, no body, no corpse, no cadaver, no stench, no trace of the one in whom they had placed their hope. Mary's instincts, they serve her well. Verse 2, notice, she turns around. Notice she runs, runs to Peter and another disciple who John calls the one Jesus loved, which actually is John himself. And interestingly, the, the grammar captures the the, the frantic moment captures the excitement of the moment. Look what she says. She says, they took him. They took the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. That's it. No details. No explanation. No play-by-play of what actually went down. Just, they took him away, and we don't know where they put him. And I don't know who she means by they. I don't even know if she knows who she means by they. But you notice that her default explanation of the empty grave is not that a resurrection took place, but the far more logical, they took him and they put him somewhere else. That's her best explanation. 
Peter and John, of course, they can't resist. Although hunkered down in that upper room out of fear, they, they risk it to, to go out and see what this is. They are willing to come out of hiding to see the corpseless cave where their Lord had been laid. Verse 3, they come out of the upper room. Notice they ran. They ran to the cemetery. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran more quickly than Peter, and he came first to the tomb, and after stooping, he saw the grave cloths lying there, but he did not enter. Interestingly, John won the foot race. And at this point, preachers, unfortunately, insert the slow fat kid joke or the old man joke as an explanation for why it is that Peter lost the foot race to the tomb. But I just want you to know that Peter being a slower runner, that that, that had nothing to do with him coming second to the grave. This wasn't some friendly jab or some inside joke, or some friendly competition between John and Peter. This wasn't some ancient form of comedy relief. No, this had, this had everything to do with the anguish of Peter's soul. Did you know that? I mean, seriously, this guy is crushed because he quit, you know. Peter quit the ministry after this chapter. Even after he saw the Lord resurrected in person in chapter 21, he goes back to fishing and he quit the ministry. He was so utterly dejected from betraying Christ again and again and again, even once to a teenage slave girl in the dark that he knew he was no missionary material. He knew. He had no business being an apostle, writing scripture, entrusted with the gospel, making disciples of the nations, proclaiming the sacred oracles of the living God. And so he quit. In chapter 21, Christ had to graciously restore this man and bring him back into ministry. And yet here is the point. Here is the point. If Christ really did raise from the dead, just like he said he was going to, Peter absolutely dreaded the conversation that he and Jesus had to have. That's the point. That's why he came in second. Because what child runs to get a spanking? What employee runs to get reprimanded? What disciple runs to get rebuked by the Lord that he professed to love, to love, by the way, more than any of the other disciples, and that he would never betray him, even if the others did, and then turn right around and betray him worse than the other disciples. But you see, Peter lost the race on purpose because facing the one that he had betrayed was absolutely unbearable. And yet he had to know. Could this be true? Could this, was this a possibility? Was it possible to be swallowed by the jaws of death and then punch your way out back to life again? Was Christ serious? In John 10, 18, when he said that he would lay down his own life and then he would take his own life back again, was this possible? Oh, this was possible. This was possible. And they finally get to the tomb and look what they find inside. Verses 5 through 7. 
The disciples ran together. John got there first, and notice, after stooping, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not enter. Simon Peter came, therefore, following him, and he entered into the tomb, and seeing the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which was around his head, but lying by itself, not with the grave cloths, but folded into one place. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because that scene, that that evidence that they see here, that is not absolute proof that Christ rose from the dead, is it? That's not technically absolute proof, but it is very suspicious. Because they, they don't have a body. And Christ said that he would raise from the dead. And he raised other people from the dead. He's not in the tomb. The stone was heavy. The seal was broken. The, the linen cloths with which he was embalmed are still in the tomb. And the one that was wrapped around his head is folded nice and neat by itself on the bench. That's very interesting because if someone broke in and stole the body, clearly they were not in a hurry, were they? And yet that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. Clearly, this was no grave robbing, tomb raiding, smash and grab operation where someone fought off the Roman guards, moved the the heavy stone, and then carefully unwrapped the body before dragging it out of the grave. No, if Sherlock Holmes had been there, the only thing that he would have deduced from the scene is that the one who was dead walked out of that tomb alive. Verse 8. John finally walks into the mausoleum, beholds the scene, connects the dots, and notice, notice what it says. He sees the scene, and what does he do? He believes. John walks into the scene, he believes. And that's a good thing, right? That's a great thing. And yet I want you to notice something very carefully. Notice in verse 9 how John points out that his own faith here in that moment was a shallow and defective faith. Verse 9. John saw the empty grave and the wrappings, and then he believed, for, for they had not yet understood the scripture that it was necessary that he rise from the dead. Do you see it? Do you see how John points out the superficiality of his own faith in that moment? The scriptures did not persuade him that Christ would rise from the dead. Christ's own statements didn't persuade him, but the grave cloths and the empty tomb did. Do you see the problem with that? John sees the problem with that. The scriptures didn't convince him, but the linen cloth did. What's the point? The point is the whole point of this entire chapter is to show that authentic faith in Christ as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure must ultimately be rooted not in your private, personal experience in what you have felt and seen, but in what God has spoken and revealed. Seriously. 
Doubting Thomas is about to get chastised for believing only when he could see and touch the very wounds of Christ in person instead of believing what God had revealed in his word. Do you see the issue that's forming here? Because you understand that the nature of authentic faith and all the evidence we need for everything that we believe is found precisely in the 800,000 word self-revelation of God called the holy text of holy scripture. And that leads me to ask you, what is the basis of your faith? What is the basis of your faith? Which means what I'm asking is, how do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know that? How do you know that what you believe is true? Is it because of some private mystical experience that is the basis of your faith or or is it the very word of God revealed and recorded and handed down to you in the very book that you're holding in your hands do you hear the difference let me ask it this way do the scriptures become any less trustworthy or true if someone has not had a private mystical experience that they felt was persuasive? Do they become less trustworthy or true? They do not. And that's John's point. That's exactly John's point. The scriptures are sufficient evidence in and of themselves to show us that everything Christ is and accomplished is worth giving everything up for. Do you believe that this morning? And that brings us next to the recognition of the rabbi. We saw the race to the tomb, verses 1 through 10. Now we see the recognition of the rabbi, verses 11 through 18. With nothing left to see here, Peter and John, they go back to their homes, I suppose believing at some level that Christ really did raise from the dead. But Mary, Mary, the early bird to the graveside of Christ, stands there weeping at the grave. And we don't condemn her for that. Well, that. That makes sense. She loved him too. He was her friend. She had given her entire life to follow him. And yet, and yet, it seems that she too, like the disciples, had something severely lacking in her faith. Because you see, this whole time she has reasoned and acted on a purely physical level, hasn't she? This whole time, she has viewed and interpreted the whole scene through a human, horizontal perspective. Think about it. She showed up on the day of resurrection not to worship a resurrected king, but to do what? To embalm a body. And her best explanation when the tomb was open was that she suspected foul play, not a resurrected Lord. Do you see? And here she is standing in front of the tomb, total grief and despair, still persuaded that her master and Lord was out there somewhere with his corpse taken by body snatchers. And so, bottom line, she is interpreting the situation with scientific and logical probabilities, but not with theological realities, because theologically and supernaturally, there was no reason to weep. 
And the tense of the Greek verb there in verse 11 reveals that Mary not only wept, but that she had been weeping for some time. I mean, this lady is totally crushed. And as she wept, for whatever reason, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb and noticed the sheer grace and kindness of God there in verse 12. In other words, notice who God sent to awaken her out of her grief-filled stupor, verse 12. As she was weeping, therefore, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels clothed in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lain. What just happened there? Angels. In that second, God sent angelic beings to be in the tomb to awaken Mary out of her despair. And it's very interesting to me. If when you reconcile the accounts together, it was still dark, both in and outside the tomb. And yet what's very interesting is that Matthew 28 tells us that these angelic beings had bright, luminescent garments that glowed like lightning. Luke tells us that, that they had dazzling apparel, and yet even that, even in the darkness of the tomb, angelic beings with dazzling apparel, she didn't even notice. Not because she was dumb, but because she was in despair. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to believe that she couldn't see this. But it goes to show the level of anguish and gloom, not to mention foolish unbelief that had gripped this woman's soul. And very appropriately, these angelic beings, they ask her a really, really insightful question, not to elicit information, but as a gentle rebuke, woman, why are you weeping? There's no reason to weep. Don't do that. There's, there's, no, there's no weeping on Resurrection Sunday. Because again, when you harmonize the accounts together, it's very possible, get this now, it's very possible that these are the same angelic beings who already made that famous statement to her back in Mark 16. Do you remember? Do not be troubled. You seek Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is raised. He is not here. The point is that conversation already would have happened back in verse 1. And yet she still doesn't believe. She's still stuck on her theory that someone raided the tomb and stole the body of Christ. She just can't accept or believe the fact that her Lord kicked open the door of death from the inside out and emerged a risen king, triumphant warrior from the grave. She does not believe that, but she is about to. She is about to. Because in verse 14, she backs out of the tomb, turns around, and who does she see? But Christ standing there in the middle of the cemetery. And she doesn't even know it's him. Not because it's dark, but because she's blind. Verse 15, she thought he was the caretaker of the graveyard, the guy who digs the graves, I guess. And still no expectations that he would actually be alive. And Christ asks her the same question as the angels. Woman, why do you weep? Who do you seek? To which she replies in verse 15, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you put him, and I will go and take him. I don't know how she's expecting to haul a grown man by herself. But in her grief, she hasn't thought that far ahead. 
This woman is blinded by despair, crippled by unbelief, hindered in her ability to expect a resurrection because that's humanly and scientifically impossible. And yet Christ, with the very same power with which he spoke the universe into existence with a single word, spoke her unbelief out of existence. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. Mary, that's it. With just a single word, the calling of her name vaporized in a single moment the dense fog of despair and unbelief. And in an instant, she sees that the man standing in the shadows is not the gardener of the graveyard, but the God of the universe, her rabbi, restored and resurrected and risen. There he is. He has appeared. He is alive. And you know those videos, they're very moving videos of soldiers coming back from deployment. And, and as their families meet them in the airport, and after not, having not seen them for months or, or, or longer, you, you see those soldiers of them, uh, the families hugging and, and weeping and, and crying so hard that you feel like their hearts are about to explode. That's kind of what Mary does here. She runs to him, she grabs him, and holds on to him with such force, such raw emotion and intensity that he has to say to her, do not cling to me. Some versions say, don't touch me, but that's not the right word. He's not being nasty. It's not a rebuke. It's a way of comforting her, her panicked soul that he's not leaving right away. Mary, it's okay. I'm not going anywhere. I have not yet ascended to my father. I am about to, but I am not leaving yet. And notice what he tells her to do in verse 17. I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. That is shockingly gracious, isn't it? That he would call his cowardly, recently defected disciples, my brothers. The, the, the very ones who deserted him right when he needed them the most. And, and that he would even say, my father and your father, my God and your God. I mean, that is, that is overwhelmingly gracious and kind, isn't it? Heck, it's not even just gracious and kind. It is theologically devastating. Do you know why? Because embedded in that greeting of, of calling them brothers, embedded in that is theology. In other words... What I'm saying is, because of his sin-bearing death and his grave-defying resurrection, he is implying here, he is indicating here that he has purchased and procured their full and permanent status of adoption as sons. That's what's contained in that 
designation of brothers, my brothers, my father, my God, your father, your God. He's talking about their adoption as sons. They became his family. They became his brothers. See that? Yes, yes, he is their Lord. Yes, their God. Yes, their King. Yes, their Messiah. But simultaneously also in that moment, they became his brothers. They were brothers, family of the Son of God. And I just want you to know that if you belong to Christ this morning, you too also are brothers of the Son of God. That you are the adopted family of the Trinity through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in your place. You are brothers of the Son of God. Are you comfortable saying that this morning? You need to be comfortable saying that. That you are the family of the Trinity. You are brothers of Christ, the Messiah. You are co heirs with Christ, and you share with him the magnificent eternal privileges of sonship and adoption. That doesn't mean that you're little gods or that you're equal to him in terms of deity or authority, but it does mean, it does mean that if you are united to Christ by faith, you became sons, and as sons and daughters of the living God, you get free and permanent access to everything Christ purchased and paid for you feel that this morning? No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. You understand, don't you, that in Christ you are not projects. You are not numbers. You are not some nameless, faceless, mass of humanity that just happened to make it into the giant bingo game of election and predestination. No, you are hand-picked, divinely chosen, singled out, eternally loved souls, chosen by the Father before time, given to His Son, and having your name inscribed in the Lamb's book of life for whom Christ paid the infinite adoption fee to make you sons and daughters of the living God. Can you think of any blessing or privilege in the universe more significant or glorious than that? Which is why one of the zillion reasons why the death and resurrection of Christ means absolutely everything. Why? Because it means no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. But this cryptic statement that Christ makes here, to, to Mary, to, to communicate to them, it had another aspect to it. You see, he wanted them to know, this, this language of him ascending to the Father, leaving to the Father, it, that, he, he wanted them to know that the plan that they had been talking about in chapters 13 through 17, the plan that they would, that he would leave, he would send the Spirit, they would be empowered to go into the nations and proclaim the gospel, that that plan was still on that nothing had changed, that their cowardly defection 
had not altered the plan, that it was still great commission business as usual. Tell them, he said, I am ascending to the Father. They'll know what I mean. So she does. It's exactly what she does in verse 18, which brings us then to the recruitment for a mission. The recruitment for a mission, verses 19 through 23. We've seen the race to the tomb, the recognition of the rabbi, now the recruitment for a mission. And recently I saw a video that is nothing short of disturbing. You may have seen it too. And this video, this shocking, horrifying video, was just another reminder to me of how hopeless a world without resurrected hope really is. The, the, the tragic, unbelievable extent to which a world without resurrection hope will go. About a week and a half ago or so in a New York nightclub, there was this really morbid and, and disturbing celebration, if you can call it a celebration. The corpse, the dead body of a recently murdered hip-hop artist named Gunu, I think is his name, was, his corpse was wheeled in to the nightclub. Wheeled in. And he was propped up prominently on display in the middle of this nightclub. Meanwhile, friends and fans and family were invited to show up and gather together around his dead, lifeless body for an evening of drinking and dancing and weeping and mourning. And ironically, they, they billed the event as the final show. Because it was Gunu's final show, as he's propped up there presiding over this party while his hit songs that he had written were playing, and, and while he was propped up there on the platform where the family were essentially worshipped him as a god. A god, by the way, who could not avoid the grave and who could not come back from the grave. And the whole scene, you can imagine, was just despicable. Just despicable and disturbing and sad and totally pagan. And, and, and what it really was was the tragic, horrible extent to which a world without resurrection hope must go in the face of death. That is the best they've got. And what that does is raise the question, doesn't it? What do we do? What should we do with resurrection hope? Let's put the question this way. What are the logical, practical, and even global implications of the fact that the corpse of our king is not propped up in a temple or a nightclub somewhere, but that he is right now alive and reigning and ruling and upholding the universe by the word of his power, and soon he will return and reign and rule and make all things the way they ought to be. What do we do with that? What are the implications of that? I'll tell you what we do with that. We preach that. We proclaim that. We announce that. We go public with that. We die for that. We die for the resurrection. Which is precisely what Christ says should and will happen to the disciples and to us. None of the disciples have seen him yet with their own eyes. And although I believe at some level they understand, they believe Mary's story, that he is alive and risen, and yet still there they sit in that gloomy upper room, whimpering and licking their wounds when all of a sudden the death eater appears. 
Notice verse 19. It's Sunday night now. (laughs) These poor guys have been cooped up in this room for hours and hours and hours doing who knows what. And and notice that the doors bolted, shut, tight, locked because out of fear for their safety and for their lives, it's still too risky to go out in public when all of a sudden, at the speed of light, faster than the eye can see, their once dead, now alive Messiah supernaturally teleports into the room. Not as a phantom, not as a ghost, not as a three-dimensional hologram, but as a living, actual person, a sovereign, victorious king of infinite power who just had a cage match with death and knocked it to the ground unconscious. And although, although Christ could have rightly rebuked them for their departure, for their, their failure to stand for him, for their defection, he could have rightly rebuked them. Instead, notice what he says, verse 19. Peace to you, brothers. Peace to you. And apparently they, they couldn't believe that it was actually him. So he showed them the wounds and he said it again, peace to you. He shows them the, the wounds and the scars that paid for their sins and for ours. And, 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 and again, he says, peace to you. Because they were really, really going to need it. What I mean is Christ spent very little time satisfying their curiosity of where he had been the last three days. And instead of that, he gets right to the point of the mission that awaited them. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Notice where he goes. Even as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Should you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. Should you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. Do you know what this is? This is their commissioning service. This is their ordination service. They just got ordained. He just authorized them to go into the world as his representatives behind enemy lines into the darkness and stand with their toes on eternity and plead with ruined sinners to be saved, to go into all the world and teach all that Christ had commanded to make disciples of the nations. Here was their commissioning service right here. And yet you you can't help but notice, can you, that the words Christ uses are just a little bit ominous, Do you notice that that they seem to have embedded within them a sober warning of what it is that awaited them? Because notice he told them, even as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Meaning what? Meaning he did not just send them to preach, but to die. Just as the Father sent him to preach and die. Embedded within their missionary call to make disciples, 
was a call to suffer just as he came to suffer. And yet this wasn't a suicide mission. This was a salvation mission. To find the elect of God in every nation through the proclamation of the gospel. And what that requires, you understand, is not superhuman strength, but the supernatural power of God, the Spirit himself. Because all of a sudden, a very graphic gesture that seems really bizarre to us, but if you think about it, it makes perfect theological sense. He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Spirit, he says. And to be clear, I don't think that happened in that moment. I think this was a precursor. This was foreshadowing of what was going to happen in Pentecost some weeks later. But you see the connection now, don't you? You see the connection between the resurrected Christ, the giving of the Spirit, and the sending on a mission. Do you see the connection between those things? The resurrected Christ, the giving of the Spirit, and the sending on a mission. Do you see the connection? The connection is airtight and unmistakable. The connection is God gave us the Spirit to proclaim the resurrected King, period. The ministry of the Spirit is mission, the power of the Spirit is for proclamation. You understand, the giving of the Spirit has nothing, has nothing, has nothing to do with ecstatic experiences or mystical feelings or private revelations, but precisely to proclaim the gospel of the risen King, even if it gets you killed, because it might. Don't you see, the Holy Spirit is not a buzz to be felt, but the third person of the Trinity who indwells you and empowers you for a mission, a mission to declare that death has been defeated and therein lies the logical implications of the resurrection. Isn't it? We preach that. We proclaim that. We announce that. We declare that. We go public with that. Not to guilt you, but to inspire you, to help you, to encourage you. Who in your life would have gone to Goo News funeral in that nightclub? Who would have attended that? Which means what I'm asking is, who in your life has no resurrection hope? Who in your life needs to hear of the death-defeating, grave-robbing, tomb-raiding gospel of Jesus Christ from your mouth? We're almost done. Let's finish with the reappearance to a doubter. The reappearance to a doubter, verses 24 through 31. Because you know that when Christ first appeared here, when he first appeared in this upper room, not everybody was there that should have been there, right? Judas obviously wasn't there because he dead, hanged himself out of guilt. And Thomas, we don't know where Thomas is. But you see, the thing about Thomas, doubting Thomas as he's famously known, he is a modern man. He's a very practical man. He's a very logical man. He's one of those, I need to see it to believe it kind of guys. You know those type of people? He's what's known as a skeptic. He's a pessimist. He's an empiricist. Unless I see it, 
and hear it and smell it and taste it and touch it, I will not believe it. And yet for his pious-sounding unbelief, he is about to get lovingly rebuked. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, or twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I should see in his hands the place of the nails, and I should put my finger into the place of the nails, and I should put my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's pretty strong language. Isn't it? I will never believe, ever, except on very specific conditions. <laughs> Think about what he said here. A, a picture or a video of the risen Christ would not be enough. The testimony of 10 men was not enough, not to mention that of the women. The empty tomb was not enough. Christ's own predictions were not enough. Christ's miracles of raising other people from the dead were not enough. And the Old Testament scriptures centuries before that declared that he would raise from the dead were not enough. That would not cut it for Thomas. No, no, no. I actually want to put my finger into the scarred indentations made by the nails. Unless I can put my hand, I've got a weird language, inside into the wound made by the spear, I will never believe. What do you do with a guy like that? Are you someone like that? Oh, I believe in science. I'm very scientific, you know. I'm very practical. I'm very logical. I'm reasonable. I'm sensible. I'm analytical, I'm commonsensical, maybe, maybe, and if you are, that's fine, but you are foolishly ruling out the fact of the supernatural, which trumps all those things, because eight days later, verse 26, the disciples are together again, and Thomas is with them. Notice again, the doors are dead, bolted, shut tight, still living out of fear, out of what man can do. And yet, who needs a door when you have a resurrected, glorified body that can pass through walls? Because all of a sudden, Christ apparates into the room like he owned the place. Because he does own the place and everything in the universe forever. And he greets them with that, again, with a theologically loaded, a reine humin, peace to you. And then he finds Thomas. He looks him right in the eye. And he calls him over. And he shows him his hands. And he says to Thomas, reach your finger here, Thomas. And see my hands. And reach your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but be believing. What grace to a foolish skeptic. What patience with such foolish unbelief. And what did, what did Thomas say in reply? 
What was his response? What was his reply? What were the implications? What, what should he and could he have said in the moment? The only thing that could be said. Look what Thomas' response is in verse 28. Look what he says. Hakuriasmu, kai hatheasmu, my Lord and my God. What is that? Only the greatest profession of faith found in the pages of Scripture. Not just Lord, not just God, but Lord and God. Lord and God. In other words, this is Yahweh. This is the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God of the universe. And he's here. I believe, Thomas says. And he was right. That's what you do with the evidence. And yet, and yet, notice, Christ goes on to say, we're almost done. Christ goes on to say the most shocking thing in response. Look at the text. Because you have seen do you believe? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Do you know what he just did? He just pronounced a blessing upon centuries and centuries of believers who will have believed in him as Lord and God without ever actually having seen him with their own eyes, which means he's talking about you. He knows. He knows faith is hard. He knows faith is supernatural. He knows faith is beyond our strength. He knows that Thomas enjoys the rare privilege of seeing Christ with his own eyes. Most believers in history will have believed in him as God without ever actually having seen him. But they do see him now, don't they? And you will too see him either at your death or at the rapture. But the question is, do we have anything to hold on to until then? Because I don't know about you, I'm not particularly excited about the fact that I have to wait till I die to be able to see him in person. That's not particularly thrilling to me. So the question becomes, is there anything tangible to hold on to? Is there anything for me tangibly, palpably uh, to, to hold on to? Is there anything at all? And the answer is absolutely there is. Of course there is. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap. Faith has substance. There is tons of evidence. Where? Where is the evidence? And isn't it interesting to you what John says in the very next verse? Look at verses 30 and 31. Many other signs Jesus did, therefore, before his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these things have been written. They have been written written, they have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Do you hear the implications? All the evidence you need to believe for anything about Christ is found 
right here in the sacred text. You understand, seeing Christ, you're not going to believe this when I say this, but it's true. And John meant it. Seeing Christ in the text is just as valid as if you had seen him in person. It was you who put your hand in the wound of Christ, so to speak, through the text. It was you who put your hand into his side, so to speak, through the text. You have now seen the Lord resurrected and triumphant. And that brings me very quickly to three questions. Three loaded and provocative questions that you have to ask and answer in light of the resurrection, and then we're done. And the questions are, do you believe this? Do you hope in this? And do you preach this? Number one, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I'm serious. Do do you believe this? And what I mean is, do you worship and treasure Christ as Lord and God? You don't get to take him any other way other than Lord and God. Because you understand, we don't worship a rabbi whose bones lie enshrined in a museum somewhere, but one who crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. Do you believe in the resurrected king? Because if not, today is the day to yield to him in submission and faith. Number two, do you hope in this? Do you hope in this? The hope that alone can come from the resurrection of Christ. I've put it this way before. When we belong to Christ by faith, how you die and when you die is irrelevant. Did you know that? When you belong to Christ, how you die and when you die is irrelevant. It's meaningless. Why? Because one day Christ will return and he will speak. And all of the worm-eaten bits and crumbs that used to be you will be supernaturally reassembled into a, into a glorified, risen person, never to die again. And that's the most unembarrassing message in the world, which brings me to question number three. Do you preach this? Do you preach this? To your kids? to your grandkids, to unbelieving co-workers, neighbors, and family? Do you preach this to your own soul, to, to other believers who already believe this? Because again, you realize that the logical implication of the resurrection is proclamation. Here now is our chance to tell the world with unblushing clarity, not about a giant bunny who hatches chocolate eggs into a basket, but a resurrected king who emerged out of the casket. See what I did there? And soon he will return, and he will rule, and he will reign, and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. Christ, we come to you, O resurrected King and Lord. We echo with Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
my Lord and my God, because that's exactly what you are. And we worship you as such. And we ask, O oh Lord, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to believe this, to hope in this, to preach this. Oh Lord, give us the kind of hope that only the resurrection can produce. And would you please use us for your great commission cause. And may you alone receive all the glory for it. And it's in the mighty name of Christ that we pray.